Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here at First Christian Church today. And uh, as Pastor Tim has already said, we're very glad you're with us. And uh, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team here. For those who are guests today, maybe we've not had a chance to meet, but I'm really glad you're with us today. We're going to look at some scriptures together today, looking in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is about that far through the Bible, a little bit past halfway. If you don't own a Bible, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, or maybe you grab your smartphone or tablet, whatever the case may be. It's, um, you can see the page number on the screen behind me, and if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take that home as our gift to you, all right? For many in the room, you are aware, and I, I, the reason I bring this up with some regularity is because it's so formative, and that is that probably the most life-shaping event um, in terms of who I am and my viewpoint of the world and um, just how I carry myself is that when I was 11 years of age, uh, my family moved from Australia to this side of the Pacific Ocean. Um, we have a long history in Australia that goes back many, many generations. And I just talk about Australia, you can hear my accent suddenly comes out, um, that goes back more than 100 years in Australia. We moved to, to North America in 1969. I was 11 years of age. I was visiting my parents about that again this week, and uh, in light of a photo I'm going to show you in a moment. But first of all, Dad said, well, if you want to see what you look like when you left Australia, here's a photo. And he sent it to me via email. Here's what I look like. Um, that's me on the left, my brother Michael. It's August of 1969, uh, wintertime. We lived in the mountains, so that's the coat. Uh, I just want you to know, I want you to know, notice I'm rocking the skinny jeans, and I was hip before hip was cool. And uh, it was the only time I've ever been hip in my life, but I was hip that day. So we, we, uh, we got on a ship and from Sydney Harbor and uh, came across the Pacific Ocean, visited a number of different islands and countries across the way. One of the countries that we visited, and that's the reason that I had this, having this conversation with mom and dad, we stopped and visited in Fiji as we came across the Pacific Ocean. And uh, Fiji is a little tropical island or a series of islands. The capital of Fiji is a place called Suva. And in 1969, I remember walking down the gangplank, literally like the movies, what you see in the movies, not like cruise ships these days, but long gangplank down. And at the bottom of the gangplank, right there on the dock, was something I had never, ever experienced in my entire life. Namely, for the first time ever, I heard a brass band. We lived up in a little town in Australia in the mountains, and we'd never, I'd never heard of a brass band, let alone actually hear one. And so these guys were playing these brass instruments. It was kind of overwhelming to me. I remember it very well. And not only were they making this music that was so phenomenally different than anything I'd heard before, they were also wearing something that was phenomenally different. Namely, they were, they were, this was the men of the National Police Army Band of Fiji, there in Suva, and they were all wearing skirts. And I go, it was the straight, oh, and I thought, you can see the one guy standing there on the left. It was a skirt that had a cut, cut jagged edge, and that was the way, I mean, they weren't kilts. I'd kind of had some understanding of kilts. These guys were wearing skirts. And so we listened to the band for a while, and we walked down the beach, and Dad wanted to see somebody climb up a coconut tree. I'd never seen a coconut tree in my life. Again, the mountains of Australia, they don't have coconut trees there. So they do way up north in Australia, but not where I was. And so this little, dad paid this little guy, probably about my age, 10, 11, 12 years of age, sixpence, which would be the equivalent of like a nickel today, um, about that size, and gave him sixpence. And this little guy 
wrapped his arms around that trunk of that tree and just made his way up. And I remember going, how did he do that? Now, so you're going, okay, fair enough, Wayne, but why on earth are you telling us about Fiji and the islands and all that sort of stuff? Well, because it's mentioned right here in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 42. Read with me. Here's what we read. Here's my servant whom I uphold. Just as an ups, uh, to, before we jump into this, remind you that what this is about is um, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to the people of Jerusalem, and he is, he is speaking God's word to them. He's saying a Messiah is coming, someone's going to come who's going to fix the chaos of the present time, and that Messiah is going to have some responsibilities. And God says, this Messiah is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight. Isaiah 50, 42, okay? I'll put my spirit on him, and he'll bring justice to the nations. He won't shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, notice what this Messiah is going to do. He's going to bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. And in his teaching, the islands will put their hope. So what we're doing here today is we are I'm going to unpack this passage of Scripture if we can. We started on this passage a couple of weeks ago, Isaiah 42. We're still working with it to some extent. And um, what we are examining throughout this Advent time, this waiting for the arrival of Jesus Christ, is we are looking at some of the titles that are given to Jesus throughout the book of Isaiah to help you understand why they were worried and why they wanted the Messiah to come. Be mindful to remember that this occurred 2,700 years ago. This was written 2,700 years ago, 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And that land of that time was living in a very similar setting to ours. Oh, yes, they, 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 I agree, they didn't have technology and they didn't, weren't aware of instantaneously like we are aware of what happens across the world. But they were living in a time of great chaos, great confusion, and the Assyrians had been coming in from the north and literally obliterating nations in front of them. And so the people in Jerusalem and the surrounding countryside are very worried about the Assyrians are getting closer and closer and closer. And is our world as we know it, is it safe any longer? And in the midst of that chaos, this word from God comes. You got, I've got good news, God says. Someone's going to come. The Messiah, my son, is coming. And he's going to bring justice to all of this mess. And just as that word was for the people of Jerusalem 2,700 years ago, I believe it's our world for us. It's our, pardon me, it's our word, it's, pardon me, it's God's word for our world for us today, 2,700 years later. See, we are these islands that are mentioned there. Verse 4. Did you keep your Bible open there and take a look again? In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. Remember, the people of Judah were not a seafaring nation like, the, say, the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were their neighbors. And the Phoenicians would get on, on you know, small boats and go across the ocean. The Egyptians would get on boats made from reeds and they would go across the ocean. But the Jewish people of Jerusalem 2,700 years ago were not, per se, a seafaring nation. But they did have some understanding that there were islands and places beyond where they lived. And so you have this word from God saying, this Messiah is coming, and this Messiah is not only going to impact the people of Jerusalem, but he's going to impact the, sea, the nations that are long, far, far away from, from where they lived. And if this is God's word to the people of Jerusalem 700 years before Jesus came, it's God's word for us some 2,000 years after because here's the good news. He had you in mind. 
God knew and knows about people outside the Middle East of Isaiah's time. He knows your story. He knows my story. And God's word is just as it was applicable to the people of 2,700 years ago. It is God's word for us today. And he had you in mind as this word came. And as God had you in mind as this word came 2,700 years ago, he said, I'm sending a Messiah. And in the book of Isaiah, there are all these titles who are given to the Messiah. And there's one of those titles that's found in verse 1. Did you see what it was? What title is given to the Messiah in verse 1. Last week we looked at some easy ones that are easy to see. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, there are four titles that are given there, including the one that's on the screen behind me. And in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, you can discover them. It's like wonderful counselor and mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those are easy to see. But what's the one in verse 1 of chapter 42? Do you see what it is? Here is my servant whom I polled. Theologians refer to Jesus as the divine servant, which immediately brings the question, okay, we understand why the world then and the world now needs the Prince of Peace, but why did the people of that time and the people of our time, why do we need a servant? Well, if you know the story of humanity, you know that we as humans were designed by God to be strong, to be resilient, to be creative. But we were also designed to be in a relationship with God. And whereas we are as human beings, inherently we can be strong, we can be resilient, we can be creative. The relationship between us and God has been broken. Namely, it was supposed to be that human beings made with some creative creative responsibilities and creative abilities, we were supposed to be in a relationship with God. When sin entered into 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 the mix, if you will, that interaction between us and God was broken. The intermingling of our lives as human beings and the intermingling with God's life, it was broken. Choices made by humans, both collectively and individually, caused the interaction to stop. And at that point, with God on one side and humans on the other side, and God not allowing to touch sin in any way, otherwise he's no longer God, there had to be some way, some bridge that gets between humans and God. And that's why Jesus came. He came as a human. We call it, theologically, we call it the incarnation, God coming in human form. And Jesus is the bridge, the intermediary, if you will, between humanity and the divine. And as a result, when we say Jesus is the divine servant, he serves humanity and causes the struggles between us and God, as well as each other, to be negated through his work. And I would say in that regard then, It would seem feasible that if Jesus is acting as the divine servant on our behalf, how do we know what he did? And if we're followers of Jesus Christ, if he's supposed to be our model, how should we live then? If we're going to be, if we're going to do what he did, if he served people, then how should we serve people? What did Jesus do? How did he live? If we can answer those questions, we'll know how we should live more Christ-like this season of Advent. In other words, how did Jesus express his servanthood? And in examining that, we can then answer this question, in what ways should his followers follow his example? Well, one of the things that we can say for certain about Jesus when it comes to being a servant was he knew when to speak, he knew when to be silent, and he knew when to just let his actions show things. And Isaiah 42 indicates This approach, verse 2, it says, keep your Bible open, friends, because we're going to stay in just these four verses today. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. This this is one of Jesus' great 
greatest strengths. And we'd be wise to learn something from him. He always seemed to know when to speak and when not to speak. When there were people who were demanding answers and there were people of power, often he'd be quiet and just say, y'all figure it out. Other times when there were people of low esteem who maybe did need answers, he would speak into their lives. When we're involved in servanthood, we know how to live our lives in this regard, when to speak, when to be silent. And I'd like to know that a little more clearly. I don't know about you. Because there are some settings that I get into, and just like you, I'm real honest here today, I'm, I'm practically clueless. I don't know what to do. Should I give some advice? It sounds, you know, I don't know if that's the kind of advice I should give. And should I be quiet? Some of you are going, well, Wayne Kent, you're clueless more than you realize. Well, thank you. Appreciate that. But here's what I am quite aware of. The reason that Jesus knew when to speak and when not to speak is that he knew the source of his servanthood. And he knew what the long-term plan of that servanthood was. I mean, again, look at chapter 42, verse 1. Here's my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Now, so he's the servant, and what's he going to do? Well, he's going to be a servant because I'll put my spirit on him. That's the source of his servanthood. And what will he do with that source? And he will bring justice to the nations. He knew his life's mission came from the work of God's spirit in him. And with that spirit, he knew the plan. He knew that he was to bring justice to the nations. I'll put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. Friends, if we are to follow Jesus, I assume most of us in the room today here, you would say, I want to follow Jesus. And if, you're, if you say you believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, if you've made that commitment, then inherent with that commitment should be this willingness to say, he's in charge of my life, and I'm going to follow him. And if we follow Jesus, then we choose to be servants too, right? Not from our strength. Because if we work from servanthood from our own strength, it's going to fail. But from the position of God's Spirit within us, the strength of the Holy Spirit within us, we're going to walk with God. We're going to say, that's the source of my strength. And then as I walk with God, I'm going to be a servant of God. And what am I supposed to do? I'm supposed to bring justice to the nations. Hmm. That's why Jesus was, sought, was, was sent, right? To bring justice to the nation as followers of Jesus Christ, as fellow servants. We are called to bring that justice to those around us. And that's where it gets tricky. Because you go, who are we kidding? I don't even know what justice is. I, I, and here's, here's the problem, if you will, when it comes to justice in our contemporary culture. When we think about justice, if you think about just be mindful of what's taking place in our own country these days. We often realize, I think incorrectly, that we think that justice is about one group versus another group. You got this group versus that group. You got corporations versus individuals, police versus particular groups, or nations versus nations, and religions versus na religions. And we go, okay, in this setting that's right in front of me, I'm going to find what's just, and I'm going to find what's just by asking what's fair. What makes it all equal? But I want to tell you, friends, from a biblical perspective, if all you're looking for is equality, you're never going to get to justice. As an aside, I think that's part of the problem in, in Washington, D.C. They want everything to be equal. But we can never get everything equal. Because from a biblical perspective, it's not what is fair that should be asked when it comes to justice. After all, was it fair that Jesus, the very real Son of God, died on a cross? Was that fair? It's not fair. 
Asking what's fair when we're trying to live, a servanthood, as ser- live in a position of servanthood and we're trying to bring about justice, that's the wrong question. Biblical justice isn't about what's fair, but about what's right. If it's all a case of I want to have my, what, what, I want to get what's coming to me, then that's not justice. That's equality. Justice from a position of Scripture is about what's right. And if we're going to, if we're going to assume that we are going to emulate Jesus' model of servanthood, we should strive to serve about bringing rightness. Not fairness. You, you probably know this deep inside your heart, but you just haven't thought about it in this language before. I, because if you have a, any sense of relationships around you, you know that relationships are never equal, are they? They're not. For sometimes one partner is stronger, another times another partner is stronger. I mean, marriage works that way. Is a marriage equal? No, a marriage is not equal. I tell couples when they're about to be married, you can't go for 50-50 on a marriage. It's 100-100. Sometimes one person has to give 100%. The other times another person has to give. It's the same with parenting. Okay? Say you've got in the typical American household, and I know not everybody fits this profile, but for the sake of my illustration, you've got a three-year-old who at three o'clock in the morning starts throwing up in the bed. That's a scene that anybody who's been a parent has faced. Right? You know what it's like. Now, in that midst of that moment, you and your spouse, you're going to ask, who's, what's fair? Who did this last time? <laughs> I did it last time. I'm not touching it. Okay? Is, do you get to ask that question? No, the kid's wallowing around and you know what? You don't ask what's fair. You ask what's right. What's right is I get in there and I clean it up, right? It was never a case of fair, what's fair or equal in those moments. What's right is to take care of the child, even if you took care of that child last time around. It's still the right thing to do. Or let's bring it home to Christmas shopping season here in Decatur. So here it is, 20 to 12. You're going to grab a little bite to eat after the service. And then you're going to go to Walmart. Okay, Wayne, now you've gone from preaching to meddling. Because here's the question. How are you going to handle what's fair versus what's right in the parking lot at Walmart? What's fair and what's equal would be that, well, the last time you were in the parking lot at Walmart, you didn't get to park up close to the building. So it should be your turn, right? Should be your turn. And you're going to drive round and round that parking lot looking for your turn to get close to the building. Except you're going to get there. And you know what you're going to see? You're going to see those darn signs up there that say for um, people who are disabled. And you go, well, it's not fair that they get to the- When are they? Shouldn't they? Those disabled people, if you this in your head, I'm just asking. I'm just asking. You're going to say, it's not fair. They always get to park up there. Why don't I get to park there at least once? Instead of parking on the west side of 51. That's how it feels sometimes, right? But, but who are we kidding? It's not a case of fair, but what's right? What's right that given the physical limitations of those people, they should park. That's the right thing to do, right? It's not fair. Who are we kidding? It's not fair that you always have to walk and they don't. Is it? No, it's not fair. Let's be honest. But it's the right thing to do. So, with that in mind, watch this clip 
on the screens. Tell me how you'd respond. If I can help Out here all day. If I can show somebody that they're traveling, traveling wrong, <laughs> and my landing shall not, who is so not be. Excuse me, uh, I was waiting for that space. Yeah? Tough. Face it, lady, we're younger and faster. <laughs> okay. Face it, lady, we're younger and faster. Ooh. Just a little extra bite, right? Not only lose the spot to be, but to also be, you know, offended at the same moment. Hmm. What's the fair thing to do? What's the fair thing to do? What would you choose to do in response to that sort of just ugliness right in your face? Would you take it or would you give it back? Watch the clip. Face it, girls, I'm older and I have more insurance. Was it fair? You bet it was fair. <laughs> you betcha it was fair. But was it right? No, it wasn't right, was it? Hmm. It was fun. It was lovely, but it wasn't right. But then we face that in our own parking lot here at First Christian, don't we? Oh, no. So you go, you know, that preacher keeps telling us to be servants of one another, and I'm sick and tired of it because he expects us to serve our guests, and we're supposed to park away from the building if we can walk that distance, and uh, you want to say, give me a break. I want my turn close to the building. I want what's my right, what's my, what's coming to me. It's only fair. But friends, serving is never about what's fair. It's about serving and saying, I'm going to upend the status quo. The Son of God came as a human, made himself into the likeness of a servant, we read in Philippians chapter 2. Huh. Here's another place where I think this might play out a little bit. Um, Setting here now, church beyond the parking lot. We have four services a weekend here. We have one at 5 o'clock, two at 9.15, and this one at 11. 
we serve communion pretty well every Sunday. Uh, one year, one, usually one week a year we don't, okay? But say 52 weeks we serve communion, all right? More or less. And uh, it takes tw- at least 28 people each week to serve communion over across those four services, if not more. 28 times 52 is 1,456. I did the math. Now, ironically, we have about 1,456 adults. We have about 1,500 adults who are involved in the life of our church. So it would seem fair that if everybody served once, we'd be done, right? But the truth be told, it doesn't work that way. We have people who, due to age or physical limitations, should not serve. But even then, I wonder sometimes why we're not overrun with volunteers. After all, we say to the congregation, uh, you can serve communion anytime you'd like to serve communion. You don't, it's, it's not like you have to have extra credentials to serve. You can, as long as you can hold a tray, you could do that. I'm not slamming anybody. I'm not trying to make anybody feel guilty, per se. Per se. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, it's just a question. It's just a question. When it comes to our willingness to serve, are we really... Do we really take on a model of servanthood? Or we say, that's just not me. What's the worst thing when it comes to communion that could happen? You could drop a tray. But do you know this? If you drop the tray, Jesus is still going to be sitting at the right hand of God and he is still going to come back on time. It's not going to upset the status quo of where heaven is going and where the earth is going. You're invited to participate. You're invited to show your service and see how God works through you. Maybe, maybe I could bring it home in, in one more way today. You know, there's a, a great example in Scripture of Jesus serving as the divine servant in the hours just before he died. Scripture says that um, in the hours before he died, Jesus gathered his disciples, 12 guys, and he said, We're go- let's go have a meal together. We know of, of it as the Passover meal or the last supper, the last meal he had before he died. They're trekking their way through the countryside of Jerusalem. They come into Jerusalem. People wear sandals in those days. It's a very dusty city. And when they get to where they're going to have a meal, their feet are filthy. And you know what he did? Scripture says that he took off his outer clothing. He put a towel around his waist, and the Son of God knelt down and washed the feet of everybody that was there. A simple, ordinary towel like this. Like this is just a common, ordinary linen tea towel. How's that going for you? In your program today, you'll notice there's a piece of cloth that we literally use to cut up a bunch of cloths like this. Did you see it there? You're going, what's with that? What's that in there for? Well, I'm going to tell you right now. It occurs to me that if we're the people of God, if we want to be the church that God calls us to be as the people of First Christian Church, our congregation should be known as a congregation that serves other people. Right? So here's why, I, why that's in your program today. It's so you can put it in your pocket between now and, and just carry it with you every day between now and the new year, okay? Just between now and the end of December. And then when you're driving around the parking lot at Walmart, it's, oh, it's going to be all right if you park at the very back end. It's probably your turn to be able to park six spaces from the building. But the extra 20 seconds walk might do you good anyway, right? And so just keep it in your pocket. I've had mine in my pocket for the last three or four days as we, the ladies in the front office graciously served us by preparing these. And it's a fascinating experience. 
walking around and put your hand in your pocket maybe to get out some change or something or other. And I'll feel that and I go, okay, how's my attitude doing right now? Because scripture tells us in Isaiah 42 that I have the responsibility to live this way because if I can do this, if I can live like this, if you and I can live like this, our nation, our community will rejoice because servanthood enables justice to be seen, experienced, and welcomed. And it says this in verse 4, he will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. And in his law, the islands will put their hope. I like that. The island called Decatur will put their hope in him if we do this right. I know we're not an island, but from the perspective of Scripture of 2,700 years ago, we're far, we might as well be an island, and if you think about it, North America is an island compared to where the people of Judah were living 2,700 years ago. So what we're going to do today to bring this home is we're going to serve communion to one another. And you're going to pass a tray down, the, down your pew. And as you pass, remind, remember to serve one another. As a matter of fact, if you're serving communion down the, in the, pew, in the uh, aisles, I invite you to get, get ready for that. The Apostle Paul, when he was talking about the nature of Jesus Christ and his servanthood, gave us a... Um, a hymn in the book of Philippians that we have that we think was probably one of the earliest hymns the church ever, ever sang. And as he's quoting the hymn, he says this, in your relationships with one another, in the way in which you treat each other in the church, in the way in which you treat each other in the parking lot, in the way in which you treat each other when you're at Walmart parking lot, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude. In other words, have something that reminds you to be a little bit different than the other people around you because this is the mindset of Jesus. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not sit, consider equality, it wasn't a case of equality with God, something to be grasped, something to be used to his advantage. Rather, it wasn't about advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, what did he do? He humbled himself. He took on an attitude. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So here today, as we eat and drink, we're getting to do that because of what he did for us and his attitude. So how's your attitude going to be? You've got to make a decision about that. Attitudes don't just happen. It's how we decide to live our lives. Keep that in your pocket this week. And as you pass the tray to one another today, be reminded that we serve one another in the name of Jesus Christ. We do that because the Lord Jesus on the night, on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in, rem in remembrance of me. Eat this and as you eat it, remember what I did. Remember how I've lived. And then after supper, he took the cup, saying, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. In other words, not only when you eat, but when you drink, remember my attitude. Scripture says, he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to take advantage of, but he humbled himself, became obedient to death, death on a cross. Paul the Apostle, when he's telling us that story, says that whenever we eat and drink, we're supposed to remember the Lord's death until he comes. Let us eat and drink and remember his attitude as we do so. I invite you to pray with me, please. 
Father in heaven, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. Thank you for pieces of linen, simple, humble cloths that can remind us that it's not about what's my right, but what is right. To that end, God, we are choosing with every fiber of our being that we can muster right now. We're choosing through the strength of your Holy Spirit to be people who will serve others this week. We do it in the name of Jesus Christ because he died for us. And in his name we pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.